You're listening to Untextbooked. This is a history podcast for the future that gives young people like us agency and voice in our education. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin. It's February, guys. That means it's Black History Month, my favorite month. And to honor this moment, we're going back into our Untextbooked archive to share a favorite episode of ours. This week, we are delving into the history of how Black Americans forged their cultural identities. Producer Sidney Clark brought us this episode. Roll the tape. Growing up in rural Pennsylvania, Untextbook producer Sidney Clark got used to being the only Black person in predominantly white spaces. And as a result, she's used to African-American history being overlooked and oversimplified. I had to unlearn that, you know, Black history wasn't just, you know, slavery. Okay, slavery's done. Now we go to the civil rights movement, you know, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, that happened. And then after that, that was done. And now we are in the present and racism is over. One of the things she had to unlearn was the idea that Blackness was a monolith. All those different events were so complex in their own way. It was not as simple. Before the Civil Rights Movement and before the Emancipation Proclamation, there were countless Black people congregating to think critically about their African heritage and their American identity. And they called themselves African Societies. One of the largest and earliest African societies was based in New York City. Dr. Leslie Alexander studied this movement and wrote the book African or American? Black Identity and Political Activism in New York City. It talks about like, you know, their struggle of holding on to their African identities. Because I know even today, there are Black people who struggle with like, you know, the identity of being all, am I African American? Am I this? Am I that? What's my ethnicity? Am I really African? Because you can see how a lot of the politics was really influenced by holding on to, you know, their African heritage. After the break, Sydney interviews Dr. Leslie Alexander about how African traditions shaped Black activism in the United States. I'm Gabe Hostin, and this is Untextbooked. Stick around. Untextbooked. Thank you so much for taking the time. I thoroughly enjoyed your book, so I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to have this conversation with you, too. So I guess the first question that I wanted to open up this interview with was, what really inspired you to create a book surrounded by the history of Black politics in New York City specifically? What inspired you to you know, write a book with that narrative? Yeah, thank you for that. I, I think there's probably two things. And the first actually is just connected to what inspired me to become a historian in the first place. It was in my second year in college as an undergraduate, and I was sitting in an introduction to African-American studies class. And my professor was giving a lecture about what we now think of as the transatlantic trade in humans, right? The slave trade. And I just remembered feeling frankly, just angry, <laughs> but I knew that I wanted to understand and learn more about the history of Black people, particularly in the United States. 
As a graduate student, I went down to the New York City Historical Archives and stumbled across an exhibit that they were doing at the time on a community called Seneca Village. Seneca Village was a predominantly Black community that was founded by formerly enslaved folks who lived on Manhattan Island. They founded it at the time in what was considered Upper Manhattan Island, which was not nearly as populated at the time, and was sort of used as a refuge and a a sort of a nation-building site, right, where Black folks were kind of trying to escape from oppression in other parts of the city. And some people actually believe it was also used as a stop on the Underground Railroad, a, a place to harbor Um, fugitives who are trying to escape from from Southern slavery. So Seneca Village was a community that was founded and then eventually destroyed by politicians in New York City in order to create Central Park. And the New York Historical Society did a wonderful job with the exhibit, but no one had really written about Seneca Village at that point. And so initially, I thought I was going to write a book about Seneca Village, (laughs) Um, But I quickly discovered that in order to understand Seneca Village, you really had to understand the politics of the Black community in New York City at the time. Like, you had to understand who the various political activists were, what the political climate was in New York City, and the experience that Black folks in New York City in the early 19th century were having. What exactly um, inspired you to focus on, you know, the time period of 1784 to 1861 specifically? I only ask because, you know, that's quite literally noted in the title. So I just wanted to know what was your inspiration for that? I picked 1784 because I it does on paper seem like a really odd <laughs> um, date. But actually, in the context of the books, it makes sense. 1784 is the earliest date that we know of that the first Black organization dedicated to kind of political uplift was founded, an organization that was called the African Society and then later renamed the African Society for Mutual Relief. Interestingly enough, actually, all across the North, particularly Northern cities, Boston, Philadelphia, Newport, Rhode Island, so these major Northern cities all had organizations right around the same time pop up that were all named African societies. And some of them had slight twists on them, the Sons of the African Society, you know, some of them um, had more distinctive names, but African Society was part of all of the titles of these organizations. There, There is suspicion that the organization was actually founded earlier, perhaps even during enslavement. But New York City um, had one of the earliest And from that time onward, the the African Society, which, like I said, eventually renames itself in 1808 as the African Society for Mutual Relief, is a benevolent organization in part, right? One that is interested in trying to raise funds to help people who are needy or impoverished or women who become widowed. But they are also an organization that becomes very active in abolition, in the movement to try to gain suffrage rights, um, voting rights for men and become, you know, active in a whole range of kind of what we would think of as social justice. And the organization actually goes on to continue for over a hundred years. It doesn't disband until the middle of the 20th century. But I think around race in the 19th century, there is also, right, this spectrum. People who are on one end of the spectrum very strongly identifying as displaced Africans, right? 
some people on the far opposite end of the spectrum who are taking the position, we are 100% American. And then I think the majority of people are kind of somewhere in the middle, right, who are seeing themselves as Africans and as people of African descent, but as people of African descent who have a right to American citizenship. In your book, you do argue that Black activists drew upon their African heritage to mold and guide their political ideology. What exactly did you mean by that? And how do you think you know, African heritage helped shape African-American activism as a whole? You know, I think that manifested in a variety of ways. Sometimes drawing upon their African heritage meant quite literally drawing upon cultural practices and rituals that they had managed to bring with them, right, despite the horrors of the slave trade, rituals and practices that bound them together culturally. And that ranged from, you know, parading, um, music, dance, spiritual worship, you know, medicinal practices, culinary habits, right, all kinds of things um, that continue in Black communities today. But part of it was also, um, this is where the question of identity becomes important. It is important to keep in mind that enslaved people were brought to this country as part of distinctive ethnic and linguistic groups, right? And so when they came to the Americas, they actually had to do work. The ways in which they drew upon a shared forged identity as Africans or as people of African descent as a way of bonding them together in this broader political struggle for Black liberation to forge themselves together as a race of people. Your book really does a great job focusing on the struggles of Black identity, whether it be, you know, African or American, quite literally in the title. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would just love for you to kind of, I guess, touch on why you thought it was necessary to incorporate said struggles. You know, I think that I kind of wanted to break down this idea that either contemporarily or historically, there has been unity of thought. <laughs> within, you know, among Black folks. There is a tendency for people to say things like, oh, the Black community this, or Black people think this. When in reality, there has always been and continues to be broad diversity of opinion. So the title African or American is really trying to, you know, understand how do they see themselves, right? Do they see themselves as Americans? Do they see themselves as displaced Africans? You know, do they literally see themselves as this complicated blending, this amalgamation of African and American, like literally African-American? Like, how do they identify themselves? And then how does the way in which they identify themselves influence the political strategy that they choose? So to give kind of a, a specific example of that, people who are seeing themselves more as displaced Africans tend to embrace the idea of emigrating, right? Leaving the United States and going to Haiti, going to, you know, West Africa, in some cases, even going to Canada, because they don't see themselves as Americans and don't see themselves as people who could ever really become Americans. But for people who are identifying more on the American side of the spectrum are taking the position, we actually have a right to be Americans, right? We're the ones who built this country, <laughs> and so we have a right to stay here and we're going to stay here and fight it out. 
So there's there's really interesting ways in which people's identities ultimately shaped their perspectives on what liberation strategy they wanted to endorse. Right. You can see um, that conversation still being quite relevant today, you know, in the Black community. And I definitely would just love if you could um, touch on, I guess, that tension that, you know, this conversation of African or American, how it affected the overall, you know, political movement. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, right? Because I think at the heart of the political conflict that's taking place in the 19th century is really like a deeper and more painful debate about whether or not people believed the United States would ever become a country that lived up to what it said it was about. This is a country that claimed to be founded on liberty, on justice, on equality, on brotherhood, while at the same time they are literally holding people in bondage in shackles. The real question for them was, is this a country that could ever actually become about what it says it's about? And I think some people are looking at the situation and saying, we want to believe, right, that this is a country that believes in liberty and justice and equality and freedom. And so we are going to be the ones to sort of hold up the mirror to white Americans and force them to make this the country that they said that it's about. And other people are taking the position, the the people who created this country may have said that that's what they're about. But look at their behavior. One of my favorite quotes, actually, that I included in, in African or American, it's a quote from John Russworm. And John Russworm, for the sake of your listeners, was an activist, an abolitionist. He was actually the first Black graduate of Bowdoin College. And he was also one of the founders of the first Black newspaper in the United States, a paper called Freedom's Journal that was published out of New York City beginning in 1827. And John Russworm ends up resigning as the editor of Freedom's Journal and shutting the paper down in 1829 and migrates to Liberia. But in one of his closing editorials, he essentially, you know, goes on this extended rant about racism in the United States and essentially says like, and this is the part where I'm going to paraphrase him badly. He says something like, you know, at the end of a thousand years, we shall be exactly where we are right now. And then he goes on to say, prejudices are not of our making, and they are not in our power to change. But I think that that editorial kind of epitomizes, right, the perspective of people who are, you know, advocating for immigration or who are considering leaving the United States in a variety of ways, essentially saying, you know, as much as we might want it to be, (laughs) right, this country is never going to be what it says it's about. And Why should we keep kind of sacrificing ourselves in that way? You know, it's so funny because I feel like I'm one of those people who like changes the extent to which I feel hopeful on a daily basis, you know, and sometimes it's moment by moment. And, you know, one of the things that for me is interesting too, even from a historical perspective, is to look at how people's opinions changed over time. What Frederick Douglass thought and believed in 1840 
and what he thought and believed in 1860 and then what he thought and believed in 1880, those were radically different things. It's an important reminder, right, that what we say and believe in one particular moment, (laughs) right, doesn't necessarily reflect the totality of our thinking on something. And I will say for me, you know, some days, the day that, you know, I learned about George Floyd's murder, I was feeling very John Russworm that day. And for me, it was in part because I sadly am old enough to have also remembered the beating and the torture of a wide variety of Black folks prior to that, most famously Rodney King. And I remember my dad's reaction to the beating of Rodney King and the later exoneration of the officers involved in that beating. You know, my dad's reaction was, you know, he couldn't imagine that something like that could have happened, right? Not obviously the beating of Rodney King. We knew Black folks were getting beat up by the police, right? But that it could have been videotaped and the the officers would still get off, right? He couldn't imagine that on the heels of the civil rights movement, we would be in that place. And so, you know, I had a similar reaction to, you know, George Floyd's murder that, you know, how are we now in this moment, right? All this time later, and this is still happening. And it does lend you to feel like at the end of a thousand years, this is where we're going to be, right? Because you have that feeling that we are not making progress, right? And Um, how we are viewed and treated in this country is not changing. So there are definitely days where I feel, you know, John (laughs) Russwormy, you know, Russwormish. But I try to stay in a place of hope and of joy, you know, and of belief that, you know, there is victory in struggle. I think it's partly why I tend primarily to write about resistance movements, (laughs) because you know, I draw inspiration and sort of take comfort in the determination that existed among activists who were up against extraordinary odds and obstacles, but who continued to keep up the fight, whether they chose to fight the fight in the boundaries of the United States or whether they chose to go fight the fight somewhere else, right? They were continuing to engage in that struggle in some way or another. So, you know, you you also have to kind of have the humility to recognize that. Thank you so much for, again, taking the time to have this conversation. Thanks for having me. Yes, and it was such a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Dr. Leslie Alexander is the author of African or American Black Identity and Political Activism in New York City from 1784 to 1861. Professor Alexander, where can our listeners find more of your work? Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. So there's a couple of places where people can follow me. You can take a look at my website, which is drlesliealexander.com, drlesliealexander.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Leslie M. Alex. Follow on Textbooked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, write us a review. We love to know what you think of Untextbooked. For behind-the-scenes content, follow us on Instagram at Untextbooked. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin.